They told me that this job doesn't include preaching very often, uh, but uh, I am glad and honored to be here with you today. I did have a little moment this morning as I walked in. Um, I, I grew up in a church. Just give you a little background here, real quick. Uh, this is free. I'm not going to charge you extra for this, but uh, uh, I grew up in a church. It was a, a legalistic Baptist church, right? And there was all these unwritten rules around the church. And unless you had been in the church for a period of time, you didn't know what the rules were. But, it, you know, you spend enough time there, you kind of learn the rules as you go along. And one of the rules had to do with dress. And so, you know, you had to have a, a button-up shirt was kind of the rule and had to be tucked in. You know, that was important. And if you really loved Jesus, if you're really close to him, you'd have a tie on too, right? Because that, that, that for some reason was the indication of how close you were to Jesus there. Well, this morning I walked in and I went to my office. I was here early and uh, the first six people I met this morning had black and orange on. <laughs> and I, for a moment I thought, Whoa, did I miss that part of Scripture where it says you have to wear a hoodie in order to, to, to make it? But uh, no, I'm glad to, uh, to be here. I hear there's a big thing going on today. And uh, I've got about two and a half hours worth of uh, sermon here today. So <laughs> hopefully you're not itching to get anywhere. So uh, yeah, it's, that's the benefit of being at the last service. I could just keep going. So that's fun. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, it is good to be here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Uh, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up with me there. Over the last year and a half or so, I, I've been on a journey of, um, uh, I just was in a difficult season. I just wanted to hear from Jesus. And so I spent a lot of time in the Gospels the last year and a half. And uh, that's why you, you when, whenever I get up here to preach lately, that's why you're hearing me from the Gospels, right? Because that's just what God's been doing in my heart. And you get kind of a bit of the overflow of what God's been doing in my heart through this, and uh, just to hear from Jesus and to be able to to um, to um, do life with Him. I told you about that church I grew up in. It was a, 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 a evangelical church, a legalistic church. It was a, a a very white church. It was predominantly right white. It was kind of the big church in in town. It was right in the middle of town, and they had a big building and. Uh, um, yeah, it had been established for a long period of time. And part of that establishment, not only the unwritten rules, but they had, they had a very clearly defined uh, much of their theology, right? And so they made these statements about uh, things like uh, the gifts of the Spirit, right? And which ones were active and which ones were not active anymore. God didn't use them anymore. It had all of these, these um, uh, you know, very clearly defined theological beliefs. And I grew up in that system, and it was a system that I, I had been fully trained in and uh, had, had grown up in. And then um, I had graduated college and was working at a bank, and uh, something happened, uh, a series of events happened in order to... Um, uh, well, let me... How much should I give you? So I was working at a bank. I was in rebellion against the call that God had placed upon my life. I can give you more of that, that story at another time. Uh, but uh, God brought somebody into my life that challenged me on that and said, hey, when are you going to take God's call seriously on your life? And after a series of events, I uh, ended up uh, deciding to go to Guatemala as a missionary. So I left my comfortable, upper-middle-class, white well-defined theology setting, and ended up in a third world country, 
right? In a, in a Pentecostal-esque type church, we had people speaking in tongues everywhere, and the, 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 you know, people were getting healed, and something amazing happened. It's just something that, that, that clicked while I was there, that God was in it, that God was still using it in order to change people's lives, and that, that, that the box that, that, that my church had created, and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I, it's important to, to, to read God's word, to come up with theology, to, to refine it right. But, but, but when we start saying that God has to work in this certain way, uh, then, then it, um, it, it limits him. And God's not going to be limited in any way. And so it was, it, it was just amazing to me to see that people were coming to faith that were poor, that were uneducated, that literally couldn't write their names, so they couldn't read the Bible for themselves, and yet God was still moving in that. In all of these ways that my white upper middle class mind couldn't imagine, it was like, you know, it was, it was mind-blowing to see. But that God was working on all aspects of the spectrum. By the way, I, I, I can't fail to mention this too. God was also working in that church for all of its foibles and flaws and everything that was going on in, in California, right? God was working through that, and people were coming to faith in him, despite the fact that we were in the way of it at times. And praise be to him for it. And today's story is really going to be a contrast of, of, of two characters, two people in this story that um, come from de- very different backgrounds, but yet come to Jesus in the same footing, just to give you a little background, this, uh, this passage takes place after Jesus had expressed some authority already in his, his, his ministry. And, and Mark's really trying to highlight the authority that Jesus had. So it starts uh, in Mark chapter 3, um, sorry, Mark chapter 4, and verse, uh, you know, towards the end there, where Jesus is on a boat, he's taking a nap, there's this huge storm going on, his disciples are working overtime to try and keep the boat from sinking, and finally, at the end of it, they say, Jesus, don't you care about us? Wake up and come save us from this storm, right? So Jesus kind of yawns a little bit, this is, this is my version of it, Right? Ah, oh, fine, if you guys want me to. In fact, he says something about, you guys don't have any faith. Like, can't you guys learn this already? And then he turns around, and he talks to the storm, and he tells it to be still, still, to be at peace. And, it, and it, it listens to him immediately. This great authority, this great power is shown over nature. And then we get to chapter 5, where he has another encounter. This time he goes across the lake to a, a non-Jewish area. If you were around the, the day I came and candidated, I, I talked about this, uh, this passage. Uh, but uh, he shows up and no one's there to meet him except for one man, a, a, a demoniac. He had been possessed by many demons, a legion of demons. He had uh, been uh, uh, sent out to the outer outskirts of town where he lived in the cemetery, right? And he cut himself and was in chains. And uh, th- th- this whole story of this, this crazy guy out in the cemetery, Jesus has an encounter with him. And Jesus shows this amazing power, not just over nature, but now over the spiritual realm, where he's able to cast these demons out and they go into pigs and the pigs run off the cliff. And the whole town gets mad at Jesus because he's, he's harming their economic income, right, with these pigs, and so Jesus flees that place. But Jesus is showing his authority in all of these different realms that exist, and we're going to see it here today. So if you'll pick up with me 
in Mark chapter 5, uh, we're going to start in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Interesting how we had a demoniac that came to him. I mean, a, 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 someone who, who was, was absolutely cast out from society. And here at the very next scene, we've got kind of the pinnacle of society, right? We've got the, the leader of the synagogue. He, he had the status in town. In fact, we even learn his name. Jairus is his name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be well and lived. It says, and Jesus went with him. Did Jesus go with him because he was this great, powerful man? Or because he had such a a deep need? Well, something interesting, at least to me, happens. It's interesting to me. I don't know if it is to you. Uh, But Jesus gets sidetracked. Here we have a little girl who's dying, the most important man in town begging him to come, the man with status, somebody that could could even raise Jesus' status in that town. And yet Jesus stops, and he gets distracted by something else. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was, in, was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So after this distraction, Jesus gets back on track with what this religious leader wanted. When he was Still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. 
Lord, as we open up your word today, we ask that you would come and that you would teach us through it, that there would be some seed of truth that would plant itself into our heart and that that seed would grow and that it would, it would end up changing us in order that, that we may be able to display your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your peace to the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. The two main characters interacting with Jesus here occupy opposite spectrums, opposite uh, um, ends of the economic, social, and religious spectrum. Right? We've got a, a, a rich man, a man of prominence in the city. We've got a poor woman who, had been, who, who, who had, was sick uh, on, on, on both sides. So Jairus, the, the guy who's named there at the beginning of our story, there's a few things we can learn about him. We know that he's male. That, that, that being a, a guy gave him some access to society that, that women in the society didn't have. He was able to not just go out and get a job, which would have been prohibited for, for most occupations in, in this society, but he was able to, to get prominence or get status in the local religious community. He had, 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 had made his way up to being the leader of the synagogue, And with that came an honor that most other people in town didn't have. I think it's interesting in here that that this guy has a name. He's not just referred to as the leader of the synagogue, but that he's named specifically. His name is Jairus. I I wonder a little bit why that might be. I I think it's probably because everybody knew his name in town, right? Everybody everybody that, that was from that area would have known who this guy was. He, he had prominence. He, was, he, was, he, he, had some, some, he had a name in town, one that, that was respected enough for him to be able to get to the place of leadership there in that local synagogue. And so his name is used. His name, the name is Jairus. Um, I think it's interesting that that's the case, especially in contrast to the woman that we're going to see here in a second. The other thing I think that's interesting is that he had... He had, a, he had honor from his position in the synagogue, and that gave him access, right? So here in this story, he has access even to Jesus. It's almost as if the crowd parted, and he was able to walk right down the middle and, and prostrate himself before Jesus and beg Jesus for help, right? It's very different than the second story we hear um, about the woman, but that this guy's prominence allowed him in order to have access. So in contrast, we see the woman here on the second part of this. We know that she's female, and that came with it, a certain connotation in that society. Uh, there was a certain place for women in that society, and, and there was uh, uh, not a lot of opportunity for her to be able to, to make her way outside of that place. She remains nameless in this story. We just know her as the woman who was bleeding, Right? Uh, there's not a, a lot more information about her. But certainly within that, we see that, that um, I, I believe the fact that we don't know her name is that she was kind of a, a, a blended in or she was on the outskirts of society. She wasn't someone of great importance. In fact, she could have never have gotten to that place because of her condition. The condition she had, the medical condition she had, would have prevented her from having any significant interaction in the community. In fact, she would have been uh, intentionally placed outside the community. There's probably a place near the temple where she would have had to have lived 
It, w- it would have been required for her to live there. Because th- her condition not just made her unclean, but it also made anybody else unclean that came into contact with her. And so the, the, the community took it very seriously to make sure that she was in a place where, you know, they didn't really care so much about her as much as it was, I didn't want to become unclean in this process, right? And so we're going to designate a place for her to be in order to protect ourselves. Anyone who had contact with her by lying in her bed or sitting in a chair that she had sat in or touching her, touching her in some way becomes ceremoniously unclean as well. And that person is required to bathe and launder their clothes and, 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 and be away from society for a period of time. So if you were a shopkeeper, you couldn't run your shop for that period of time, right? Because you were unclean and you had to go through the ritual in order to become clean again. Her discharge of blood caused her not only to, to, to suffer the physical effects of that, but also to be discharged from society because it made her this major bearer of impurity. She is therefore similar to like what we read about the lepers, right? Where the lepers had to walk on the other side and they had to proclaim to everybody that they were unclean. She would have been placed in that same category because of the condition that she had. Jewish law was very, very uh, clear and and had very clear uh, guidelines about how people with these type of conditions uh, should be treated because, because of them. So here we have these two diametrically opposed people. You've got the, the, the pinnacle of society, and you've got the, the outskirts of society. You've got the, the, the people at the center of, of, of their life, of, of the life of the town, and you have the woman who's been pushed off to the side. We don't even know her name, right? She's just that woman over there. And yet both of them come to Jesus. Both of them come to Jesus with a great need that they had. And Jesus pays attention to both of them. Both of them come to Jesus in faith. It's the next point there on your outline. Is that both of them come to Jesus in faith. It wasn't important their status in society. It wasn't important how much money they had in the bank. It wasn't important how much they knew about Jesus or deep theology. All that was important was that they came to him in faith. That was the only prerequisite that Jesus had upon their lives. Faith can look different, but it has to be directed at the right person. Faith can be imperfect. Thank God for that. It can be bold, it can be halting, it can be brave, it can be laced with fear and trepidation. What counts for it to be effective is for it to be directed at the right person. What counts for it to be effective is that the faith is placed in the person of Jesus, in the true one who has power. Now, this man of great prominence in town had a lot to lose in order to come before Jesus. But what he could have lost from his prominence in town was far less important to him than to lose his own daughter. He came to Jesus with a broken heart, with a desperation that only a father can feel that would be in a situation like this. 
He came to him wanting his daughter healed. And he was willing to give up whatever it took in order to see that happen. The woman, on the other hand, had nothing to lose. She had already been cast away from society. I mean, at the end of the day, the, 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 the worst that, that was going to happen to her is for her to be pushed back outside of society yet again. And yet she knew that she needed to get to Jesus because he had the hope that she needed. And so her desperation, just as this rich man's desperation, her desperation drew her to Jesus as well. She had faith that her only hope was going to be in the person of Jesus. And so she was drawn to him just as the the, the religious leader was as well. Jesus hadn't made a good name for himself amongst the religious class. He had made some statements that were a little, you know, didn't quite line up with the way that uh, they, had, they had made that pretty little box for God to fit in, right? He did things like tell people that their sins were forgiven. And, and the, the, the Jewish leaders of that day, that was blasphemy for only one person could forgive sins, and that was God himself. And yet Jesus was doing just that. And so that way you knew that he had the authority to forgive sins. He was showing his authority also over illness and over over nature and over disease. You see, faith pushes through any obstacle that might come in their way as well. Jairus shows us that, that very clearly. For by aligning himself with Jesus... Jairus was, was, was opposing himself to the other religious leaders. He, he was putting his prominence in the, the local synagogue in, in jeopardy. It, it, was, it was very possible that, that, that he would have been stripped from that position, that he would have been stripped from his status in that, that town simply because he aligned himself with this radical man, Jesus. The woman came to Jesus with fear. She's kind of hidden amongst the crowd. You can imagine that that it had probably been a long time since she had been in a crowd quite that size. She would have never have dared to go close to a crowd like that. There was a great chance that somebody would have recognized her and they would have started jeering her and, and, and calling out to her and making sure everybody else knew, unclean, unclean. She, 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 she should have, she, I'm certain she entered into that with some fear. She, she at least entered into not thinking that she was important enough to be recognized. For, for even in her attempt to be healed, in, in, in her reaching out to Jesus and touching Jesus' cloak, she does it in secrecy. So much so that, that, that she touches the cloak and then she just kind of disappears back into the crowd. Nobody even knows who did it. You see, faith does that to us. It it pushes us through the obstacles that are in our way. If there's something that's deep within us that believes deep enough about who Jesus is, it's going to push through whatever obstacle might be in our way in order for us to have a taste of that Jesus, in order for us to be able to experience that Jesus in some way. And if we really believe that the the condition of the human heart is, is as desperate 
as the Bible tells us it is, then we would be people who would be willing to push through whatever obstacle is in our way, not only for us to come to know know Jesus and to to, to live a life of faith in him, but also for our children and for for our co-workers and for those other people that he's placed in our life. There there would be a, a fervor within our lives that would push through whatever obstacle came in our way. But what are they gonna say about me? But what happens if they spend the rest of eternity damned to hell because we were too, con- too, too worried about what the people were gonna say about us? But, but, but what if, what, what if I, I, I lose my position? What if I, 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 I lose my job? I, 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 look, guys, I think there's wisdom in the way that we, 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 we do life. We should be as wise as... As, as serpents and as gentle as doves, right? Like, that, that, that should be part of our life and the way that we do it. But, but there has to be some fervor within us that pushes through obstacles, that just doesn't give in to them. We, we see these two people who were convinced that Jesus was the answer to the problem in their life, and there was nothing that was going to stop them from getting to Jesus. See, faith requires action requires us to do something. Too many people try to admire Jesus from afar. Now, if you came into this room today, you walked in, and I, I uh, pointed to this stool here. And let me just do a little footnote. I understand that the stool is not, you know, the analogy of the stool that I'm going to use is not totally complete in trying to understand faith, but I hope it's helpful to, for us to understand a little bit today. But if you were to walk in this room and I were to point to the stool and say, hey, have a seat in that stool. Many of you would, and maybe even unconsciously, would take a moment in order to examine the stool, right? To observe the stool, to, to make sure that it's, it's safe for you to sit in it. And, and now that everybody's staring at it, I could ask you, does it look safe to sit in it? Is, is, is it worthy of your trust? I mean, it looks sturdy, right? I mean, the, the pieces all seem to be in its proper place, and, you know, the welding seems to, to, to be intact, and um, the, the, the seat's flat, which is the way it's supposed to be. It's not hanging off of one side, and it seems to all be connected to each other. But see, far too many people spend all of their life uh, observing Jesus from afar, making conclusions about who he is, uh, maybe by his writings or, 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 or maybe by what other people say about him. But I hear it all the time. I hear things like, oh, well, Jesus, he's, he's a good guy. He's, he was a good teacher. He, he, he teaches some good moral things, right? I, I think it'd be really good for my kids to hear something about Jesus. And, and so we spend all of our time, or, or many people spend their time uh, observing Jesus from afar, But that's not what Jesus asks out of us. He could care less what you think about him. You know how we know that? Because he could care less in in Scripture over and over again. We see that he cared less about what the, the important people of his day thought about him. He continued teaching truth even though it made him mad, even though it stepped on their toes. He continued proclaiming the kingdom of God. He didn't care what people thought about him. He wanted people to trust him with their lives. Is it faith for me to step back and to observe this stool? My argument would be no, that's not faith. It's good observation, maybe. 
It doesn't become faith until I trust the stool with the weight of my life. Right? Until I, until I allow it to sustain the weight of my body. What I'm doing now is full trust in this stool. Could it break? Could it fall over? Of course it could. But I have enough information to know that it's trustworthy enough in order to hold the weight of my life. And maybe the call for some of us today is to go beyond just admiring Jesus from afar. But, but to take a step closer, to, to, to live a life of faith where, where, where the, the weight of your life, the weight of the, the, the hurts and the pains and the decisions and the, 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 the confusion and, 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 and whatever it is in your life that, that overwhelms you, is Jesus trustworthy enough for you to put the weight of that onto his shoulders? To allow him to sustain you through it? Or do you continue to believe that you're going to find a better way? The reason I say you're going to find is because you haven't found it yet. (laughs) That somewhere in your own strength, if you just read enough, if you just, you know, do enough, if you just uh, work hard enough, you're going to find that thing that makes it all make sense. Or you can completely surrender to Jesus, give him the full weight of your life, and allow him to sustain you through whatever it is that you're going through right now. That's faith. That's what these two people were willing to do. Because they were going to lose everything. We have no reason to believe that these two grasped a complete understanding of the Trinity and how Jesus' relationship with the Father was complementary and they, they shared duties. And There's no indication that they understood the hypostatic union of the one who was standing right in front of them or even their need for double imputation of their sins on a Savior and his righteousness on them. There's no understanding that they had a deep understanding of theology. All they had a deep understanding of was their need and the fact that Jesus was the answer to that need. And so they were willing to come. And we as God's people should put nothing else in people's path in order for them to know that same Jesus. There's no other requirement to come to Jesus except to come to him in faith. Whether you know enough or not, whether you've had enough experience or not, whether you've figured it out enough or not, is not a requirement to come to Jesus. Whether you have a certain amount of money in your bank account or whether you've achieved success in this life, all of that means nothing when you come to Jesus. All that matters is that you're willing to trust him with your life, to put the full weight of your life in his hands. Finally, faith drives us by desperation to trust in his sufficiency. Martin Luther, I say finally, <laughs> like this is my last point of the sermon. This is my last point of this section, by the way, so put your seatbelts on. We're not getting out yet, okay? Martin Luther um, talked about God's grace and when it came to him, And he used this term, and you're going to have to forgive me. I I know it's probably not appropriate to bring it up in church, but uh, I'm going to do it anyways because Martin Luther did, and he's got more fame than I do when it comes to theological stuff. So, um, but he used this term. He says that God's grace came to him when he was on the toilet. 
That was a term that was common during, uh, in, in, it's a German phrase. It was common during his time that we'd use it. It's probably really similar to being caught with your pants down, right? That's a, a term that we use in English today. But it's talking about in, in, a, in a moment of great vulnerability. In fact, uh, uh, Martin Luther's a biographer, his, name, his last name is George, wrote this about it. He says, where else are we more vulnerable, more easily embarrassed Yet it is precisely in a state of such vulnerability when we are reduced to humility, when like beggars, we can only cast ourselves on the mercy of another, that the yearning for grace is answered in the assurance of God's inescapable nearness. See, it's in the middle of that that, 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 that desperation. You can hear it in Jairus' voice as he pleads to Jesus for help for his daughter. You can hear it in in the the timidity of of the woman as she reaches out to Jesus, uh, hoping that this is the answer. But it's that that desperation sometimes that that, that puts us in the right place where we're defenseless. You see, the little girl is spared death for now, but has not been given a total reprieve of it. The woman has been healed for now, but she's going to face more ailments as she grows older. Let me tell you, i got a list of my own that I can tell you about. Faith, however, is able to hold on in the face of death, knowing that God has conquered death and the resurrection of Christ. The, the author, the, the, the biographer of, of Luther, George, recalls one of the lowest points of Luther's life. His beloved daughter, Magdalena, barely 14 years of age, had been stricken with the plague. Brokenhearted, he knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. When she had died and the carpenters were nailing down the lid of her coffin... Luther could be hear, heard screaming out, Hammer away! On doomsday, she will rise again. See, that's faith. That's faith that even in the midst of our greatest desperation, we can believe that God is going to pull us through. Even when life seems like it, it's attacking us on every side, We can be convinced that God is up to something good in the midst of it. See, people continue to get sick. Children continue to die in the world around us. And God continues to be good even in the midst of it. How does that make sense? I don't know that I can give you some logical, you know, four-point reasoning on how that makes sense, but I can tell you that if you've spent any time with the good God, you're going to know that even in the midst of the heartache of this world, even in the midst of the, the destructiveness of our sin, he continues to remain good and continues to sustain us even in the midst of that. There's two more things I want us to pull out of Scripture today. The next one is that Jesus expresses his authority and addresses their humanity. Jesus, Jesus gives us this, this grand display of power. 
He, he showed it to us over nature as he calmed the sea. He, he, he cast out the demons. We're able to see his, his power on display there. And now we see it on display as he, as he, as he heals a woman of an ailment that's, that's plagued her for years. And then ultimately, as he conquers death and raises this little girl up from from the grave. We have the full power, the, 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 the full might of God on display for all of us to see. And yet Jesus does something that, that, that blows me away. Jesus stops and recognizes the woman. She asked, he asks for her amongst the crowd, who is it that touched my garment? Some might say that it would have been more compassionate of him just to let her leave and, 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 and slip away. But instead, Jesus wanted to notice her, wanted to see her, wanted her to know that she was important and that she was seen. She she comes to him in in great fear. And Jesus addresses her by using a a very specific term. He, He uses the term daughter in verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. That term daughter might be easy for us to glance over today in our Western understanding of things, but it it was key to understanding what Jesus was doing in this lady's life. He he wasn't just healing her of a disease, but he was restoring her to to, to being a daughter of of the Jewish faith. She was no longer um, to be cast out and to be on the outskirts of society but he was restoring her to a central part yet again into the world. She could marry now. She, she, could, she, she could buy and sell. She, she could be part. She could know that she was important enough for Jesus to stop even when there was a little girl dying down the road. It meant enough to Jesus to stop and to notice her. Jesus does something very similar with the, with the little girl who, who had died. Later on in the narrative, we read that Jesus comes to her, that, that there's all these people wailing in the house. There was, there was professional people that would have been hired to come and to make a big scene. This was their job, was to wail and to, to, to cry out. If you've ever seen uh, pictures or, or video of, of, of North Korea when one of their leaders died, right? Like People are just over the top, wailing and crying. And everybody with this, this over-exuberance of, of, of emotion. Well, that would have been, uh, people would have paid people to come and do that at this man's house because he was important, right? Jesus doesn't. In fact, they laugh at, at the man at one point, right? Because he still wants to go to Jesus. All of these mourners are like, we know what's going on. She's dead, dead, right? Like, there's no hope for that. And yet Jesus comes to him, asks him to believe, and then goes and has this, this very tender moment with the little girl. In verse 42, I'm sorry, verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi. He uses the, 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 the common vernacular. Not even, not even Greek. He's, he, he's talking in, in the, the ancient language, the, the, the language that they would have used as a family together. 
It uses that term Talitha, which, which is translated little girl, which would have been uh, what, what they would have used it for. That's what they would have called it. But the, really, the, the, the ultimate translation would be little lamb, right? Little, little precious lamb. And that's what he calls her. He, he calls her out. I just, I just get this deep sense of this tenderness of Jesus in the midst of this great power that he is a, a exposing to the world. He shows this great tenderness, this great humanity for the people that he deals with. John 1.14 puts it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Full of power and yet tender and gentle. Full of truth and completely full of grace at the same time. We're called to do the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. It tells us speaking the truth in what? In love. Both are important. We, as God's people, should be committed to the truth of God's word. Unwaveringly committed to the truth of God's word. But we cannot use it as a weapon to beat people over the head with. We also cannot substitute the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word for a different social gospel that says all that matters is love. For we can love people to eternal damnation that way. We can love people and take care of their needs and never tell them what their greatest need really is. If we are to grow up, if you continue in Ephesians 4, it says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. If we are to grow up in our faith, we will learn how to do both of these, to speak the truth and to be loving. We cannot give in to the culture around us. We cannot allow the culture around us to influence us and continue to participate in the Christian cancel culture. We must speak the truth. We must be unwaveringly committed to the truth. But we must do so in love. We must do so in a way that respects people's humanity. That that, that doesn't minimize them. But that reaches out to them. Finally, when Jesus enters our world, he always offers us peace. V.H. Vanstone puts it this way, and he moves about, he, as he moves about, he leaves behind him a trail of transformed scenes and changed situations. Fishermen no longer at their nets, sick people restored to health, uh, critics confounded, a storm stilled, hunger assuaged, a dead girl raised to life. Jesus' presence is an active and instantly transforming presence. He is never the mere observer of the scene or the one who waits upon events, but always the transformer of the scene and the initiator of events. To the violent storm, he commands peace, and the storm listens. For the demoniac, he restores him to his right thinking and sends him back to the people that he had caused chaos in their life with in order to bring peace. To the woman in our story today, he says to her, go in peace and be healed. And he meets Jairus. He meets him right in the place of his biggest fear, the death of his daughter. 
and gives him something to replace it with. Do not fear, he says. Only believe. To us, he says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. See, that's the promise to us today. For when Jesus comes and touches our life, when, when we're invited into to his presence, we, we are invited into a peace that passes all understanding. A peace that goes beyond our circumstances, beyond the chaos of our lives. A peace that, 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 that does something about the, the biggest need in our life. In fact, Romans puts it this way in, in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because Jesus has come and taken on our sin and made us Justified, made us not guilty before God because Jesus came and took that guilt on himself. Because of that, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I invite you to live out of that peace today to make that the center part of your life, to, to go before Jesus on a daily basis, to, 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 to seek out his word and to allow his peace to come and fill up your life. I know that living in this world doesn't bring peace, that the chaos of this world wants to attach itself to distract us as God's people from what really matters. But I pray that you are restored back to that peace as you live a life of faith that you would know that peace. But, but let me be very clear, that peace is not just for you. There are people in your life who need that peace as well. People that are dying because they don't know Jesus as their Savior. Inside your, your bulletin, I gave you a card. Just as another little reminder, write the names down. Probably about 8 to 15 of people in that God's placed in your life. Would you take a step of faith and just write their names down today? Put that card in a place where you can see it regularly and pray for them on a regular basis. And then just allow God to move. Just take them to Jesus. Place them at his feet. Say, God, here's my friend. Here's my coworker. Here's my teammate. Here's my classmate. Here's my neighbor. Here's my my son, here's my daughter. Would you come into their life? Would you give them faith so they can experience your peace? I think this might be a, a, a call to, to, to another step of faith for you as a believer in Jesus. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, there's, there's no more important message that you can hear today than this. Things can be made right between you and God if you would come to him in faith. You can be at peace with God if you would allow him to forgive your sins. Would you pray with me? With every head bowed and every eye closed, or somebody in this room, that, a room this size, I imagine that, that, that hasn't made that step of faith.
who, who, who's confused or, or um, overwhelmed by the things of this world that continues to, to barrage them every day. And you might just come before God today and say, God, I desire your peace. And so I choose to trust in you. I don't understand it all. I, I don't understand everything that goes into that. But, but, but what I do understand today is that your son Jesus came and died on a cross. And that that death was sufficient in order to make things right between you and me. And so today, I choose to trust you. I choose to place my faith in you. For the rest of us, may our faith propel us today. Lord, would, would you would work in the midst of whatever amount of faith that we have and help us to, to take another step to trust you more, to, 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 to live out of the peace that you promise us and not to be distracted by the things of this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said.